Chapter 55 Unconscious Hypocrisy We have already considered the general message conveyed by these solemn and solemnizing verses. As we return to them, it is important that we should bear in mind that in this little paragraph our Lord is dealing with those who are orthodox. It is not a statement about those who are heterodox, those who hold false teaching or doctrine. Here the teaching is correct. They prophesy in His name. It is in His name that they cast out devils. And it is in His name that they do many wonderful works. And yet He tells us that they are finally reprobate. So much then is possible for one who is nevertheless finally lost. That is why these words in many ways are more solemnizing and indeed alarming than anything we find in the whole extent of Holy Writ. After that preliminary survey, we can now proceed to draw certain lessons and deductions from it. Surely, nothing can be more important than that we should do so. Our Lord goes on repeating these warnings as He exhorts men and women to enter in at the straight gate and to walk in the narrow way. And here again, He warns us of the terrible dangers and possibilities that confront us. The one great lesson to be learned from this passage is the danger of self-deception, and this is emphasized in several ways. For instance, our Lord uses the word many. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and that? We must not exaggerate the force and strength of this word many, but it is a word that carries a very definite meaning. He does not say an odd person here and there, but many. Self-deception is a danger to the many, and his warnings against it are frequent. It is there in the picture that follows about people who build their houses upon the sand. It is the same warning that we find also in the parable of the ten virgins. The five foolish virgins are a straightforward case of self-deception, nothing more. It occurs again in that final picture in Matthew 25, where Christ portrays the final judgment and speaks of those who will confidently come and tell him of the things they have done for him. The same warning is being given in all these cases. It is the warning against the terrible danger of self-deception. In other words, as we read what he says here, we are given the impression that these people to whom he is referring will be amazed and astonished at the day of judgment, that day. As we have seen, the whole paragraph is spoken with the day of judgment clearly in mind. Indeed, the whole chapter, as we have constantly seen, is concerned to enforce the fact that the Christian must live his whole life in the light of that coming day. Read through the New Testament and observe how frequently that day is spoken of. The day will declare it, says Paul, as if to say, It is all right. I'm going on with my ministry. I'm doing everything with my eye on that day. People may criticize and say this or that about me, but I shall not allow that to worry me. I have delivered myself and my whole eternal future into the hand of the Lord my judge, and the day of his judgment is going to make everything manifest. It is clear from the words in this passage that these people, according to our Lord, are going to be astonished at the day of judgment. They have assumed that they are safe and seem quite sure of their own salvation. Upon what grounds? Because they were saying, Lord, Lord. They were orthodox. They said the right things. They were fervent. They were zealous. They prophesied in His name. They cast out devils. They did many wonderful works. And they were praised of men. They were, in fact, regarded as outstanding servants. So they were perfectly happy about themselves, quite assured about their whole position, and they never suspected for a second that there was any fault to find in them. 
They could turn to our Lord in the day of judgment and say, Surely, Lord, you know our record. Don't you remember all we said and did in your name? They had no doubt about themselves. They were perfectly happy. They were quite assured. It had never crossed their minds even to contemplate the possibility that they could be anything but Christians and saved people, heirs of glory and of eternal bliss. And yet what our Lord says to them is that they are lost. He will profess to them. He plays upon words here. They make their profession. He too will make a profession. He will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never had anything to do with you. Though you are always saying, Lord, Lord, and doing things in my name, I never recognized you. There was never any contact between us. You have been deceiving and fooling yourselves the whole time. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There can be no doubt about it. The day of judgment is going to be a day of many surprises. How often does our Lord tell these people, his contemporaries, and tell us through them that he does not judge as they judge? Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That kind of false judgment is found at times in the church as well as in the world. So often our judgments are carnal. Listen to the comments people make as they go from a place of worship. So often they are about the man, about his very physical appearance or what they call personality, rather than about the message. Those are the things that attract. Our judgments are so carnal. Thus our Lord teaches us to beware of this terrible, alarming possibility of deceiving ourselves. We are all quite clear about conscious hypocrisy. The conscious hypocrite is not a problem. He is obvious and self-evident. What is so much more difficult to discern is unconscious hypocrisy, when a man not only misleads others, but also deceives himself. When a man not only persuades others wrongly about himself, but persuades himself wrongly about himself. That is the very thing with which our Lord is dealing here, and we must repeat it again. That if we believe the New Testament is true, then there is nothing more important than that we should examine ourselves in the light of a statement such as this. If then what we are describing is unconscious hypocrisy, does it not follow that we can do nothing about it? Is it not by definition something with which a man cannot deal? If it is a condition in which a man is deluding himself, how can he possibly safeguard himself against it? The answer is that, on the contrary, a great deal can be done. The first and most important thing is to consider the causes of self-deception. That is the way to discover it in ourselves. If we can arrive at a list of the causes of self-delusion and self-deception, and then examine ourselves in the light of these causes, we shall be in a position to deal with them. And the New Testament is full of instruction with respect to that. That is why it is always exhorting us to test and to examine ourselves. That is why it is always exhorting us to prove and try the spirits, and indeed to prove all things. It is a great book of warning. That is not popular today. People say that is being negative. But the New Testament always emphasizes the negative aspect of truth as well as the positive. What then are the common causes of self-deception in this matter? First, there is a false doctrine of assurance. This is the tendency to base our assurance only upon certain statements which we ourselves make. There are those who say, Scripture says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but shall receive everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. 
Whosoever believeth in his heart and confesseth with his mouth shall be saved. They interpret such statements as meaning that as long as they acknowledge and say certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ, they are automatically saved. Their error is surely this. The man who is truly saved and who has a genuine assurance of salvation does make and must make these statements. But the mere making of these statements does not of necessity guarantee or assure a man of his salvation. The very people with whom our Lord is dealing do say, Lord, Lord, and they seem to put the right content into that statement. But as we have seen, James reminds us in his epistle that the devils also believe and tremble. If we read the Gospels, we discover that the evil spirits, the devils, recognize the Lord. They refer to him as the Holy One of God. They know who he is. They say the right things about him. But they are devils and they are lost. So we must be wary of that very subtle temptation and remember the way in which people wrongly persuade themselves. They say, I do believe, and I have said with my mouth that I believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and that he has died for my sins, therefore. But the argument is incomplete. The believer, the Christian, does say these things, but he does not stop at merely saying them. That is what is sometimes described as fideism or believism which means that a man is really putting his final trust in his own faith and not in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is relying on his own belief and on his mere assertion of it. The whole object of this paragraph, surely, is to warn us against the terrible danger of basing our assurance of salvation upon a repetition of certain statements and formula. We can think of other illustrations of this danger of being a merely formal Christian. What, in fact, is the difference between what we have just described and basing our assurance of salvation upon the fact that we are members of a church or that we belong to a certain country or that we were christened when we were infants? There is no difference. It is possible for a man to say all the right things and yet to live such an evil life that it is quite plain that he is not a Christian. Be not deceived, says the Apostle Paul in writing to the Corinthians, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is therefore quite possible for a man to say the right things and yet to be living an evil life. Let no man deceive himself. The moment we begin to rest our faith solely upon repeating a formula, without being sure that we are regenerate and that we have evidence of the life of God within us, we are exposing ourselves to this terrible danger of self-delusion. And there are many who state and defend their doctrine of assurance in that way. They say, do not listen to your conscience. If you have said that you believe, that is enough. But it is not enough. For many will say, Lord, Lord. But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. A superficial doctrine of assurance, therefore, or a false doctrine of assurance, is one of the most common causes of self-delusion. The second cause of this condition follows inevitably from the first. It is the refusal to examine oneself. Self-examination is not popular today, especially, strangely enough, amongst evangelical Christians. Indeed, one often finds that evangelical Christians not only object to self-examination, but occasionally even regard it as almost sinful. Their argument is that a Christian should look only to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he must not look at himself at all, and they interpret this as meaning that he should not examine himself. They regard examining oneself as looking to oneself. They say that if you look at yourself, you will find nothing but blackness and darkness. Therefore, you must look not at yourself, 
but to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they look away from themselves and refuse to examine themselves. But that is not scriptural. Scripture constantly exhorts us to examine ourselves, to prove to our own selves whether we are in the faith or whether we are reprobate. And it does so for the very good reason that there is the terrible danger of drifting into antinomianism, that is, into holding that as long as a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not matter what he does, that if a man is saved, it does not matter what kind of a life he lives. Antinomianism holds that the moment you begin to concentrate on behavior, You are putting yourself back under the law. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, and all is well. But that, again, is surely the very thing against which our Lord is warning us in this paragraph. The fatal danger of trusting only in what we say and forgetting that the essential thing about Christianity is that it is a life to be lived and that it is the life of God in the soul of man. That the Christian is a partaker of the divine nature, and that this must of necessity be manifest in his life. Or let us look at the first epistle of John, which was written to correct this very danger. It has in mind those people who were very ready to say certain things, but whose lives were a blatant contradiction of what they professed. John produces his famous tests of spiritual life. He says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There were people who were doing just that. They were saying, I'm a Christian. I'm in fellowship with God. I'm a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were living in sin. That is a lie, says John. It is a transgression of the law. It is disobedience to God and his holy commandment. However much a man may say he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, if the habit of his life is persistently sinful, he is not a Christian. And clearly the way to discover this is to examine ourselves. We must look at ourselves and examine ourselves in the light of the commandments, in the light of scriptural teaching, in the light of this Sermon on the Mount, and we must do so honestly. And furthermore, when we come to this question of the works which we do, whether prophesying or casting out devils and doing many wonderful works, we must examine our motives. We must ask ourselves honestly, why am I doing this? What is the real urge behind it all? Because a man who does not realize that he may be doing the right things for a thoroughly wrong motive is a mere tyro in these matters. It is possible for a man to preach the gospel of Christ in an orthodox manner to mention the name of Christ, to be right in doctrine, and to be zealous in the preaching of the word, and yet really to be doing it the whole time for his own interest and his own glory and self-satisfaction. The only way to safeguard ourselves against that is to examine and scrutinize ourselves. It is painful and unpleasant, but it has to be done. It is the only way of safety. A man has to face himself squarely and ask, Why am I doing it? What is the thing that in my heart of hearts I am really out for? If a man does not do that, he is exposing himself to the terrible danger of self-delusion and self-deception. But let us now consider another cause of this self-same condition, which is the danger of living on one's activities. We need to be quite clear about this, for there is no doubt that one of the greatest dangers of all in the Christian life is that a man may live on his own activities. I once had a letter from a lady who had been a very active Christian worker for some 40 years or so. Then she was taken seriously ill and for six months was unable to leave her house. 
She was honest enough to tell me that she had found it to be a very severe and trying discipline. I know exactly what she meant. I have seen it in others and, alas, know something about it in my own experience. I have seen men who have been indefatigable in the work of the kingdom suddenly laid aside by illness and scarcely knowing what to do with themselves. What is the matter? They have been living on their own activities. You can be so busy preaching and working that you are not nurturing your own soul. You are so neglecting your own spiritual life that you find at the end that you have been living on yourself and your own activities. And when you stop, or are stopped by illness or circumstances, you find that life is empty and that you have no resources. This is not confined, of course, to the Christian life. How often have we heard of business or professional men who have been highly successful and perfectly healthy all their lives? They then decide to retire, and everybody is astounded when, in six months or so, they hear that they have suddenly died. What is the matter? Often the real explanation is that the thing which kept them going, which provided the stimulus to living and the purpose to life, is suddenly withdrawn, and they collapse. Or think of the way in which so many people today are kept going solely by entertainments and pleasures. When they are suddenly cut off from these, they do not know what to do with themselves. They are utterly bored and helpless. They have been living on their own activities and pleasures, and the same thing can happen in the Christian life. That is why it is a good thing for all of us from time to time to stop and take a rest and to examine ourselves and ask, What am I living on? What if the meetings you attend so frequently and so regularly were suddenly prohibited to you? How would you find yourself? What if your health broke down and you could not read or enjoy the company of other people and you were just left alone? What would you do? We must take time to ask ourselves these questions. One of the greatest dangers to the soul is just to be living on our own activities and on our own efforts. To be over-busy is one of the high roads to self-deception. Another fruitful cause of this trouble is the tendency to balance our lives by putting up one thing against another. For instance, if our conscience condemns us about the life we are living, we put over against it some good work we are doing. We recognize that certain things count against us, but then we make a list of the good deeds we are doing, and the account balances with a little credit at the end. We have all done that. Do you recall the classic example of it in the case of Saul, the first king of Israel? Saul had been commanded to exterminate the Amalekites, and he had done so up to a point. But he kept King Agag alive, and he also kept the best of the sheep and oxen and so on. You notice how clever he was when upbraided by Samuel. He said, I have kept them in order that we might make a sacrifice unto the Lord. That is a perfect instance of balancing. And we are all prone to this. Instead of allowing our consciences to do their work, we immediately put positive things over against the negative. A man who judges the condition of his life in that way can have only one end. A man who does that sort of thing in business will soon be bankrupt. And a man who does it in the Christian life will soon be spiritually bankrupt, and in the end will be dismissed by the Lord himself. We must apply this lesson to ourselves. We must allow conscience to deal with us. We must not excuse ourselves, but listen to its dictates and obey them. That brings us to the vital principle which underlies all the causes of self-deception. In many ways, the root trouble, even among good evangelicals, is our failure to heed the plain teaching of Scripture. We accept what Scripture teaches as far as our doctrine is concerned, but when it comes to practice, we very often fail to take the Scriptures as our only guide.
When we come to the practical side, we employ human tests instead of scriptural ones. Instead of taking the plain teaching of the Bible, we argue with it. Ah, yes, we say, since the scriptures were written, times have changed. Dare I give an obvious illustration? Take the question of women preaching and being ordained to the full ministry. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 11-15, prohibits it directly. He says quite specifically that he does not allow a woman to teach or preach. Ah, yes, we say as we read that letter. He was only thinking of his own age and time. But you know times have changed since then, and we must not be bound. Paul was thinking of certain semi-civilized people in Corinth and places like that. But the scripture does not say that. It says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Ah, but that was only temporary legislation, we say. Paul puts it like this, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Paul does not say that it was only for the time being. He takes it right back to the fall and shows that it is an abiding principle. It is something that is true, therefore, of the age in which we live. But thus, you see, we argue with Scripture. Instead of taking its plain teaching, we say that times have changed. When it suits our thesis, we say it is no longer relevant. Another way in which we do the same thing is this. The Scripture lays down quite plainly not only that we are to preach the gospel, the true message, but also how we are to do so. It tells us that we are to do so with sobriety and with gravity, in fear and trembling, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, and not with enticing words of man's wisdom. But today, evangelistic methods which are a flagrant contradiction of these words are justified in terms of results. Look at the results, men say. Such and such a man may not conform to the scriptural method, but look at the results. And because of the results, the plain dictates of scripture are put on one side. Is that believing the scriptures? Is that taking the scriptures as our final authority? Is not that repeating the old error of Saul who said, Yes, I know, but I thought it would be good if I did so and so. He tries to justify his disobedience by some result he is going to produce. We Protestants, of course, hold up our hands in horror at the Roman Catholics, especially the Jesuits, when they tell us that the end justifies the means. It is the great argument of the Church of Rome. We repudiate it in the Roman Catholic Church, but it is a common argument in evangelical circles. The results justify everything. If the results are good, the argument runs, the methods must be right, the end justifies the means. If you want to avoid terrible disillusionment at the day of judgment, face Scripture as it is. Do not argue with it. Do not try to manipulate it. Do not twist it. Face it, receive it, and submit to it, whatever the cost. A further common cause of self-deception is our failure to realize that the one thing that matters is our relationship to Christ. He is the judge, and it is what he thinks of us that matters. It is he who will say to these people, I never knew you. And that word knew is very strong. It does not mean that he was not aware of their existence. He knows all things. He sees everything. Everything is naked and open to him. Know means taking a special interest in, being in a particular relationship to. 
You only have I known of all the families of the earth, said God to the children of Israel through Amos. That means that he is in this peculiar relationship to Israel. What our Lord will say on the judgment day to these self-deceived people is that they have done all these things in their own power and energy. He never had anything to do with it. So the most important thing for all of us is not to be interested primarily in our activities or in results, but in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we know him and does he know us? Finally, therefore, we must realize that what God wants and what our blessed Lord wants above all is ourselves, what Scripture calls our heart. He wants the inner man, the heart. He wants our submission. He does not want merely our profession, our zeal, our fervor, our works, or anything else. He wants us. Read again the words uttered by the prophet Samuel to Saul, king of Israel. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15.22 To Saul's argument, We kept the best of the sheep and the oxen in order that we might sacrifice them, in order that we might offer them to the Lord. This is the answer. God does not want our offerings. He does not want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. He wants us. It is possible for man to say right things, to be very busy and active, to achieve apparently wonderful results, and yet not to give himself to the Lord. He may be doing it all for himself, and he may be resisting the Lord in the most vital place of all. And that is finally the greatest insult we can offer to God. What can be a greater insult than to say, Lord, Lord, fervently, to be busy and active, and yet to withhold true allegiance and submission from Him? To insist upon retaining control of our own lives, and to allow our own opinions and arguments, rather than those of Scripture, to control what we do and how we do it. The greatest insult to the Lord is a will that is not completely and entirely surrendered. And whatever else we may do, however great our offerings and sacrifices, however wonderful our works in His name, it will avail us nothing. If we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God, and that He came into this world and went to the cross of Calvary and died for our sins and rose again in order to justify us and to give us life anew and prepare us for heaven, if you really believe that, there is only one inevitable deduction— namely that he is entitled to the whole of our lives, everything without any limit whatsoever. That means that he must have control not only in the big things, but in the little things also. Not only over what we do, but how we do it. We must submit to him and his way as he has been pleased to reveal it in the Bible. And if what we do does not conform to this pattern, it is an assertion of our will, it is disobedience, and as repellent as the sin of witchcraft. Indeed, it belongs to the type of conduct that makes Christ say to certain people, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Workers of iniquity. Who are they? The people who said, Lord, Lord. The people who prophesied in his name, and in his name cast out devils, and in his name did many wonderful works. He calls them workers of iniquity because, in the last analysis, they were doing it to please themselves and not in order to please him. Let us then solemnly examine ourselves in the light of these things.